Well, good morning, church, and Merry Christmas. You're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, if you're looking in the black Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, or the chair in front of you, that should be found on page 450. 450. And we want to remind you, as always, uh, if you do not own a Bible at home that you can read, take that Bible home with you. Uh, Read it. Mark it up. I think carefully about who God is saying, what God is saying about himself and to us about who we are. We would love to put God's word in your hands if you don't own a copy of God's word that you can read. Everyone there, Psalm 8? Some of you are? All right. Recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that shared a story about the life of baseball great, Joe DiMaggio. It said this, it was the summer of 1945, and World War II had just come to an end. And some of the soldiers, including famous baseball stars who had fought in the war, streamed back into America and American life. New York Yankee slugger Joe DiMaggio was trying to be a Yankee fan, Joe DiMaggio, before he went back into baseball, and so he snuck into a mezzanine seat with his four-year-old son, Joe Jr. But when they sat in the stadium, a fan noticed Joe DiMaggio, then another, then another. And soon, throughout the stadium, people were chanting, Joe, 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 DiMaggio. DiMaggio was moved. He gazed down to see if his four-year-old son had noticed the tribute, and he had. See, Daddy, said little DiMaggio, everyone knows me. (laughs) Joe DiMaggio Jr. made an innocent child's mistake that afternoon of assuming that all the glory of Yankee Stadium belonged to him and not his father. And we may chuckle at Joe Jr.'s mistake that he made that afternoon. But our self-centeredness is not such a laughing matter. Our self-centeredness stretches back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Satan had fed a lie to Adam and Eve, and our first parents decided to take that lie and reject God and to put themselves in the center of creation as if they were on the throne of God himself. And that rejection of God, that putting themselves in the center, means that self-centeredness is natural for all of Adam and Eve's descendants, including you, including me. Self-centeredness, when we're born into this world, is our default No one has to teach us how to be self-centered. Before sin entered the world in Genesis 1 and 2, our value was determined by God and how we related to our creator. But now that humanity has by default rejected God, we're left asking, okay, if our value is no longer determined by our relationship to God, what gives us value? What gives us significance? What gives us meaning and purpose? What makes someone great? The way the world answers that, the world's economy says, well, you determine your greatness, you determine your value based on comparison. 
who's better looking, who's a better athlete, who's more intelligent, who's more successful, who's more respected. And then on that pecking order, we kind of know where we, play, where we, where we sit, what our value is, what our significance is. And you fill the world with people who are self-centered and trying to compare and compete, and that's why we have a world filled with chaos. But in contrast, contrast to the world's value system, Psalm 8 gives an unexpected answer to the question of what gives us value, what makes a person great. Psalm 8 says that greatness is not based on our performance, our bank accounts, True greatness comes to those who see and cherish the greatness of God. True greatness comes to those who are small, to those who are weak, to those who are humble. And isn't that what Christmas is all about? So how do we get there then? If true greatness is counterintuitive, if, if our default position is self-centeredness, how do we get back to rediscovering the value and the honor that God has made us and created us to have? Well, to answer that question, let's look at Psalm 8 together. Psalm 8. You see the title there, To the Choir Master, According to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. So this is a psalm that's meant to be Sung, it's to the choir master. We're not sure what gittith is. It, it might refer to a lyre or a guitar, so it's, it's likely meant to be a psalm that's sung to the music of a guitar, right? That's the heading, and it's a psalm of David, King David. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. Now, when we look at Psalm 8 and we ask the question, what is this about? It helps to kind of put the, 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 the structure in order. In terms of the structure, the psalm begins in verse 1 as it ends in verse 9. Same phrase, verbatim. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so by bookending the psalm in that way, the psalmist is showing us this is what the psalm is about. You want to know what the theme is? It's the majesty of God. The majesty of God. Now when a king enters a room, 
people bow down and they say, your majesty. That God is majestic highlights his sovereign rule. It highlights his unrivaled strength and power. It highlights the glory of God, the splendor of God. In short, majesty is the greatness of God that stops us in our tracks, that grabs our attention by our face and leaves us saying, whoa, that's the majesty of God. So if we're asking this question, how do we get back to the place where where we know the honor and value that God has bestowed on us? Point number one that we see here in verses one and two is this. If you're taking notes, point number one, embrace God's purpose for your life to worship God. Embrace God's purpose for your life to worship God. Again, majesty is this this attribute, this word that shows us the greatness of God. It leaves us saying, whoa. And when when you look at this, when you trace the word majesty throughout the Old Testament, sometimes the majesty of God is so awesome, it leaves your knees shaking. It can be terrifying to see the majesty of God. And so knowing that, verse two comes out of nowhere. You're like, how does verse two relate to verse one? Because verse two pictures this battle scene between two groups, those who praise God and those who are opposed to God. There are two groups of people in this world, those who praise God and those who are opposed to God. Those who are opposed to God are referred to as his foes or his enemies, And so we're meant to picture this battle scene with this mighty army lining up with countless soldiers armed with swords and shields and spears and wearing impenetrable armor. They are bloodthirsty. They are fierce. They are intimidating. And so what will our majestic God do? Verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the avenger, to still the enemy and the avenger. That's not what we expect. We expect God to see this mighty army and we expect God to raise up an army far greater, far more fierce than the enemies. But instead, he recruits babies. He recruits infants and says, you're my soldiers. So you have a a mighty enemy on one side of the battle, and you have babies with diapers and pacifiers on the other side of the enemy lines. The contrast between these two sides in this battle is the contrast is so drastic, it's almost laughable. When the enemy looks at his opponent, Weak little babies that need a diaper change, they're left asking, is this a joke? We got this. Victory is ours. Do you see the image that David is painting on the canvas of Psalm 8? The enemy comes to the battle line, beating their chest, clanging their swords, confident of victory because their opponent is composed of babies and infants with diapers. But then you look at God's purpose in his recruitment. 
Look at his purpose in verse two. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Why? Why does he do this? Why does he use babies and infants to establish his strength? Why? Verse two, to still the enemy and the avenger. To still is the Hebrew word sabbat, where we get Sabbath. It means to silence, to put an end to, to bring to rest. It's the same verb that we see in Psalm 46, verse 9, when we're told that God makes wars cease. He brings wars to silence to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. So when we see babies and infants in verse 2, I think what David is doing is he's using babies and infants to represent people in this world who are weak who are helpless, who are dependent. God is powerful. God is majestic. But he expresses, he shows his majesty and power, not through the strength of men, not through swords and spears. He displays his majesty through weak men and women. David knew all about this. David, who wrote Psalm 8, experienced this before when he was a little boy with a slingshot. And he stood before Goliath, this giant with a sword and a spear. And he stood toe to toe with David or with Goliath the giant. And he declared in 1 Samuel 17, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. So again, picture David and Goliath. Goliath looks down at this puny little shepherd boy with his slingshot, hearing him make these threats in 1 Samuel 17, and he probably heard David saying, goo goo gaga, you gonna, you, you're really going to take me on? He was confident he could take David. That is, until God used David to silence the foe, and David lifted Goliath's head off his shoulders. In verse one and in verse nine, the bookends of this psalm, David refers to the name of God. And when you see that word name, it's, it means more than an ID badge for God. Hello, I am Adonai, I am Yahweh. That's what he's saying. When, when David says the name of God, it, he's referring to who God is, his character. The truth about God as revealed in scripture. That's his name. Not God as we imagine him to be or even want him to be. His name is who God is in reality. Notice in verse one, it's not an opinion, it is truth. How majestic is your name. That's not an opinion. That is stated as truth, as fact, 
undeniable fact. How majestic is your name, O Lord. The praise of God, therefore, is a response of a human being to seeing the truth of God. Just think about this. When you stand before the awesome Grand Canyon, you don't have to tell your heart, come on, heart, be amazed. Come on, say ooh, ah. No, you just, you look at the Grand Canyon, you see its beauty, and the beauty of the Grand Canyon demands your praise. You say, oh, because it is beautiful. It demands our praise. In other words, to praise true beauty is simply to be awake to reality. Now perhaps you hear all this and you're unconcerned that you are asleep to the beauty of God. You're unconcerned that you're asleep, indifferent to the glory and the majesty of God. I mean, because being awake, let's just be honest, being awake is hard. And, and, and you're comfortable in your dreamland. And listen, that would be fine if you were asleep in your bed. But if you're asleep behind the wheel of your life and the car, is rolling, uh, the, the car of your life is rolling down the road and there's a bus headed for you, then it's not so okay. When David says the Lord is majestic, God's majesty is not a piece of art that we can ignore without consequence. It doesn't work that way. His glory is a reality. It is a truth that we will be confronted with. And we will be confronted with the truth of who God is, either for our life and for our joy, or we will be confronted with his majesty to our death and our judgment and our sorrow. It all depends on how we respond to the majesty of God now. So friend, do a little self-assessment today. Does God's majesty grab you by the scruff, grab your attention? Does God's majesty, when you see it in the pages of scripture, does it leave you saying, whoa, whoa, that's awesome. Or are you asleep? Sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, our hearts are unresponsive to the majesty of God. We read God's word, we hear sermons from God's word that de declare the truth, that show the truth of the majesty of God and we're like, what time is it? And we're, we're distracted. We're indifferent to God. We're indifferent to his majesty because we are, if we're honest, we are distracted by lesser majesty, lesser glories. Our lunch plans that afternoon, the presence under the tree, Sports Center's top 10, the new home listing that you saw on Zillow, your vacation plans, money, success, the applause of the crowd. But friends, Psalm 8 reminds us that the reason that God made you and I 
The reason we exist is to worship God. And don't mishear me, by worship, I mean more than just singing songs on Sunday. I mean worship in a Romans 12 sense where all of our life is a living sacrifice. All of our life is laid down in adoration and obedience to the king because he is majestic. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. In other words, it means us acknowledging that we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So if we hear this, that this is reality, and we look at our hearts, we do a self-assessment, and we realize we are self-centered. And if our self-centeredness has left us unconcerned or indifferent to the majesty of God and his name, what should we do? The bus is coming. We're asleep at the wheel, indifferent to the glory of God. What do we do? Point number two, own your insignificance. Point number two of this psalm, own your insignificance. We're gonna see this in verses three and four. Look with me again at verse three. David writes, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? This past Wednesday night, my son Hudson and I were in the backyard and we looked up and it was a clear night and we looked at the stars and the moon and the sky and we talked through Psalm 8 together. It was, it was really fun. And you can see the moon brightly shining 238,000 miles away from earth. The sky was filled with stars that were glittering in the skylight. I think that night sky is the setting when David was inspired by God to write Psalm 8. He's somewhere in Palestine under a clear night sky. And as David gazed up at the night sky, the vastness of the universe that he could see with his naked eye made him feel tiny, insignificant. And what's amazing is the the information that he was able to see with his naked eye, we, we because of technology and science today, we, we actually have more understanding. We have more awe-inspiring data of how vast our universe is than David had in his day. Our solar system, with its eight planets, moons, and a dwarf planet called Pluto, orbit around the sun. And are part of what's known as the Milky Way galaxy that we're a part of. That's our home address. But to put things into perspective, if our solar system were the size of, think of our solar system, right? If our solar system was the size of a grain of salt, the Milky Way galaxy would be the size of a football field. Let that sink in. David on the night that he looked up at the sky without light pollution, likely saw two or 3,000 stars at night. But our galaxy, we know because of telescopes and such, we know that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy that we're a part of, has over 200 to 400 billion stars. If we go to one of the nearby galaxies next to the Milky Way galaxy, 
a nearby galaxy appears to have a trillion stars. And some of the stars in that galaxy are a hundred times larger, more powerful than our sun. All this barely scratches the surface of how massive the universe is. Scientists estimate that there are probably 150 to 200 billion galaxies in the universe that we know of. And the Hubble telescope indicates that that, there, there might be 10 times that number of galaxies in our universe. In fact, if we could count all the stars and make an estimate, one estimate says for the total number of stars in our universe, one estimate is that there are one septillion stars. That's one followed by 24 zeros. That's a, that's a lot of stars. Are you feeling small yet? That's the point. When you pause to think how big the universe is, it's mind-boggling. And yet the point that the moon and the stars are making is not only for our science textbooks. Notice David says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, the emphasis is on God again. As big and as vast and as mind-boggling huge as the universe is, God is greater. He's so much greater that he pictures, God doesn't have fingers, he's a spirit, but he pictures that these are the work of his fingers, He set this in place. He set the moon, the stars in place. He put them there. They have his fingerprints on them. This is why Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In other words, the moon and the stars every night are preaching a silent sermon, shouting, God is glorious. God is majestic. So as David looks up at the sun or the moon, the stars that night, and he's overwhelmed by the size of creation and his God, David asks in verse four, and he asks rightly, what is man? What is man? And the answer is, we're insignificant. We're tiny. We're small. but oh, how often we overlook this fact. We're so busy in our fast-paced lives, we go from one thing on our to-do list to the next. We're busy, 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 and then we we turn on the TV at night because we're tired and we crash to bed and we don't think about this. And we miss this. Friends, when's the last time you slowed down enough to look at the moon, to look at the stars, and to consider what the stars are saying? They don't speak audibly, but their vastness, the, 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 the greatness of our universe is saying something. And it's preaching a silent sermon saying, God is glorious. Take some time to meditate on God's creation. Take some time to meditate as you look at the stars and the moon and consider what God is saying through his creation. Because observing the vastness, the the massiveness of our creation kills our pride. It reminds us how small we are. And it puts any achievements that we're tempted to boast about in their proper perspective. 
Now, you may think at this point, good grief, Zach, point two, this all sounds depressing. How is owning my insignificance helpful? Look at verse four. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Friends, if if your value and your significance is derived from your performance, your abilities and your achievements as the world's economy operates, then you are insignificant and that's the end of the story. You're nothing but a tiny blip on this vast, on the screen of this vast universe that you live in. (laughs) But if our value is not based upon our performance and how we compare, how much applause we get from the world, if our value is found in something else, it changes things. We have value not because of how well we perform. We know that we have value, according to verse 4, because God is mindful of us. He remembers, he thinks of us. Just think about that. Don't just glance over this. Put this in light in the context of what we've just been talking about. The God who determines the number of stars, the God who gives a name. Scripture says he has a name for every star in heaven. The God who gives a name to each of the septillion of stars. The God who holds the universe together by the power of his word is not too busy. He is not distracted such that he's not mindful of you. Far from it. The text says, even though he's got all this on his plate, he's mindful of you. He's mindful of, put your name at the end of that sentence, he is mindful of Lisa. He's mindful of Tim. He's mindful of Aaron. He's mindful of you. That's, that is mind-boggling. He's mindful of you, and he cares for you, verse 4 says. Sometimes the people that we want to notice us, the people that we hope will like us, we're kind of clamoring for their attention, they don't know. They don't care. They don't even know that we exist. And so as a result, you may feel stupid because they don't listen to your ideas. And you may feel ugly because when you walk in the room, they don't notice you. Or you may feel worthless because they don't care. In other words, if we look for our value based upon being noticed and appreciated and valued by others, there's a good chance that we will not feel like we're of much value. And the pain of that rejection is real, and it's often why we feel discouraged or depressed throughout the week. But what this psalm teaches us is that instead of scrambling around in hope of gaining the attention of others who will one day die and be forgotten, we are meant to listen to what verse four says. Christian, the one who set the moon and the stars in place is mindful of you. He cares for you. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows the details that no one else knows. He knows the joys of your heart and the sorrows of your heart. And he understands them completely. In fact, he is so attentive and so mindful of you that he knows the number of hairs on your head. You don't know that, but he knows it. 
He cares for you. Do you believe that, child of God? Makes all the difference in the world. And it's true. But sometimes believing that and resting in that truth that God is mindful of us, that he cares for us, is hard to believe. Because there are painful trials that make it feel or make it seem like God is a million miles away. These trials leave us asking, where is God? Does he even care? Accidents, illness, tragedy, war. The world is filled with things that leave us asking, where is God? But when our hearts are tempted to doubt that God actually cares for us, when our hearts are tempted to believe that God is far away from us, Christmas proves God's heart once and for all. So after owning his insignificance in light of a vast, massive universe, David asks in verse four, what is man that you care for him? What's interesting is the Hebrew word for care is the idea that God visits us. If you're reading the King James translation, it'll, also, it'll say that God visited us. So in other words, this idea of caring means that God comes for us. When we're drowning and we cry out to God for help, he doesn't just say, I hear you. No, he hears and he cares for us by coming to our rescue. Friends, this is what Christmas is about. We were drowning in our sin. We couldn't save ourselves. We cry out to God and he heard. He was mindful and he visited us. Jesus we sang about it earlier, is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's what we mean when we talk about the imminence of God. God's imminence means that he is not far from us. For those who cry out to him, he is near, he is close. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. That's why we rejoice. That's why we have jubilee. That's why we, that's why we sing songs of joy. Luke 168, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people. That's the announcement of Jesus. He came, he visited, he cares. And so if you ever, friends, if you or I are ever tempted to doubt God's heart, if we are ever wondering, does God actually care for me? Where is God? Look to Jesus again and again and again. Look to Jesus who laid aside his glory and humbled himself by becoming a man 2,000 years ago. Look to Jesus who lived a perfect life. Look to Jesus who resisted temptation, who endured misunderstanding, mockery, and ridicule. Look to Jesus who willingly laid down his life and died on the cross. Look to Jesus who drank the cup of God's wrath for sin that you and I committed. Look to Jesus. There are tragedies that we will not have answers for this side of heaven. Sometimes the best answer we can say is, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. I don't know how long. But with our unanswered questions, one thing God has made crystal clear is that he cares for us. 
And the way that he's made that clearest and undeniable is that he came. He came in Jesus Christ. And so we can say with absolute confidence today, he is mindful of us. He cares for us. And he is good. So don't believe the lie, friends. Don't believe the lie you can be good enough on your own because compared to an infinite, holy God, we fall short. But that's why God came for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ died for sin. And on the third day, he rose again so that all who turn to Jesus and trust in him, God promises to redeem, to forgive, to cleanse from sin and shame, to make us right with him and to adopt us as his sons and beloved daughters. My non-Christian friend, this is the gift that God is offering to you and I this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, I pray that you would receive that gift this morning. You don't pay for it with your good works. You don't have to be good enough. You can't be good enough. Part of the way that you, we receive this gift is by acknowledging that there's nothing we can do. It's by confessing our sin. It's by simply receiving by faith, trusting in God, the gift that he's offering us. And so my non-Christian friend, I pray that you turn from your sin this morning, that you turn from your self-reliance and that you open your hands, the hands of your heart to receive Christ today. That you might receive the forgiveness, the cleansing, the reconciliation that comes because of Jesus. It's what Christmas is about. It's why Jesus came. God's gracious forgiveness is amazing. But his grace does more than forgive. That would be enough. We could close our Bibles and go home. That would be enough to praise God. But his grace is more than forgive. His grace also restores. So if we're gonna know the value that God has given humanity, we must embrace God's purpose for our life to worship him. We must acknowledge our insignificance. But third, this is the third point, hope in God who crowns us with glory and honor. Hope in God who crowns us with glory and honor. This is verses five through eight. So let's look at verses five through eight again. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Friends, again, if our value is based on our abilities and our performance, then we are insignificant, tiny specks in a vast universe with not much value. But if we stop looking at ourselves in the mirror and we look up to God and listen to him, we find that he has crowned us, crowned us, Put a crown on our heads of glory and honor. And he has given dominion over the works of his hands to mankind. What David is doing is he's reaching back to Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. There we learn that God created humanity, men and women, in his image. 
and which means that he gave us the unique privilege of reflecting and ruling. That's what it means to be made in God's image. We have the privilege of reflecting God and ruling over his creation. As a reflection of God, human beings are by definition, what it means to be human is you are a mirror that reflects. You are a billboard that broadcasts a message all the time. And what you're saying with your actions and your words and your deeds is, this is what God is like. But the tricky thing about being made in God's image is we can't turn it off. Even after sin entered the world, we're still made in God's image. And so when we lie, we say to the world, God is a liar. When we are unfaithful, we say to the world, God is unfaithful. But when with God's help, we tell the truth and love, we, as those made in his image, broadcast or reflect an accurate image of God to the world saying he is true, he is love. So friends, what that means for us and our value is this. No matter your age, your ethnicity, your gender, no matter your career or lack of career, your value, your significance, your worth rests in this. God made you in his image. And we are all equally made by God in his image, which means you have incredible worth, incredible significance, incredible value that God has bestowed upon you by making you in his image. That God crowned us with glory and honor means that we were, we were created, one of his purposes for humanity was we were created to rule over his creation as his vice regent. God never stops being God, but we were meant to rule his creation under his rule. So we rule, not however we want, but the dominion that he gave us is under God's rule. So we're meant to rule creation, to subdue it, have dominion over it, representing him, carrying out his purposes, reflecting his character. And that goes to how you work your job how you manage your home, how you relate to your spouse, how you raise your kids. And all that we do, we are called to have dominion and bring order and flourishing and represent and reflect God. That's quite the privilege, the honor that God has bestowed upon humanity. Okay, you see it? So if we go and say, okay, well, how are we doing? If we receive, if humanity receives a report card on how we've done in this task of representing and reflecting the character of God, our grade on the report card would be a big fat F. Because instead of submitting to God's rule and using the authority that God gave us for the good of others, we took the crown that God gave us, threw it on the ground, in the mud, and stomped on it because we wanted to be king and queen without God. No thank you, God, I'm gonna do this my way. I wanna do what I want, when I want. I wanna be the one who determines what's right and wrong. I wanna be king. That's where true life and happiness is. But it was a lie from Satan. And instead of becoming greater by rejecting God's rule, we became poor. Instead of looking to God and becoming like him, we looked inward and we became more like the animals. In exchange for Christ, 
we chose chaos. And that's what we see right now in the world around us. But all of this points to the wonder and the beauty of Jesus coming for us in flesh. What Christmas is about. Now, if I were writing the story of Christmas, God, the creator of the world, the majestic one, coming into his creation as the king and the savior and the Messiah, who there would be pageantry, there would be fireworks, there would be dignitaries sitting in seats of honor, and then he would come in as king, because that's what we do in this world, right? But consider what we sang earlier about the coming of Jesus in the first Noel. The first Noel, which means Christmas, the first Christmas. The first Noel, the angel did say, was to certain famous dignitaries, celebrities with the red carpet, right? No. The first Noel, the angel did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, announcing born is the king of Israel. No pomp, no fireworks, no dignitaries, only poor shepherds. And Jesus, the sovereign God through whom all things were created, lying humble, a baby in a manger, because there's no room for him in the inn. Seems like God delights to use weak things to display his awesome power. Or fast forward, that's his birth. Fast forward to Matthew 21. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, what's known as the triumphal entry. He's riding into Jerusalem as a triumphant king. But he doesn't ride into Jerusalem on a powerful war horse with dignitaries announcing his arrival. No, the text says in Matthew 21 that he came humble, riding on a donkey. And Jesus' supporters who cried out, Hosanna! which is a term endorsing him as the Messiah. The people who were shouting Hosanna were children. (laughs) So powerful religious leaders looked at this, looked at Jesus and thought, what a joke. And so they spat on him. They gave him a crown of thorns to mock him. And they crucified him on a cross. And as Jesus, the Son of God, hung on the cross, they continued to mock him, saying, (laughs) he saved others. He cannot save himself. (laughs) He's the king of Israel. (laughs) Let him come down from the cross, and we'll believe in him. You see, they assumed that if Jesus were a powerful, majestic king, then he would have the power to avoid the cross. But what they missed was that in reality, Jesus enduring the cross was putting his majesty on display. When Jesus came, he fulfilled Psalm 8 in a way that we have failed. That's why Hebrews 2 verse 7 which Ms. Sharon read to us earlier. That's why Hebrews 2, verse 7 applies Psalm 8 to Jesus. It's originally written about humanity, but the, the writer of Hebrews applies it to Jesus. He says, you have crowned him, Jesus, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his, Jesus' feet. So humanity failed, Psalm 8. Jesus comes in and he succeeds. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. 
So the crown that we threw on the ground in the mud and stomped on in pursuit of our self-rule, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. His death and resurrection means more than our forgiveness. His death and resurrection brings about our restoration. So if we keep reading in Hebrews 2, verse 10, it says that Jesus brings with him many sons. Where does he bring them? To glory. In other words, when we are united to Christ by faith, he doesn't just forgive our sins. He says, come on up, sit on the throne with me. Huh? I just want to be your servant. I just want to be your slave. Just forgive me. I will, he says, but I want you to sit with me and I want to restore the rule, the honor that you have forsaken because of your sin. That's how far God's grace and mercy goes. He puts the crown that we trampled on the mud back on our heads. And as we look to Jesus, his spirit conforms us and reshapes us into his likeness so that we better reflect his majesty, his image, his rule over creation. That's awesome. So why is this world so messed up? (laughs) Well, Hebrews 2 verse 8 reminds us that at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So Christ Christ came first 2,000 years ago to die for sin, and he is the king, and he is seated on the throne, and he he has begun the process of making us like himself. The process we call sanctification. He makes us like himself. In Christ, we are not will, will be, we are new creations. But at present, right now, the world still is broken. The world still groans under the curse of sin and it will groan and we will groan with creation until Jesus comes a second time when he'll wipe away every tear. So what do we do in the in-between while we wait? Well, the old, in the Old Testament, the, the first commission that God gave to humanity was in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He calls those who are made in his image to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That was the first kind of great commission in the Old Testament. Well, sin threatened to derail that plan, but Jesus says no. He restores us to that purpose, and then in Matthew 28, he gives the church the great commission in the New Testament. He says, church, go. This is what I want you to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, go, make disciples of all the nations, not just here in Maryland, but around the world, in order that you may fill the earth with image bearers that reflect my glory, that the earth may be filled with my glory to my praise. So as we proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit, as we live the Christian life individually and collectively as First Baptist Church of Marlboro, with the power of the Spirit, the church is God's plan to fulfill the Great Commission. The church is God's plan to fill the earth with his glory. That's amazing. Is that not amazing? But that's also a huge task. That's enormous. 
And the enemies of the church are powerful, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sometimes it seems like the church is insignificant, small, weak. Sometimes it seems like the church is losing. Meanwhile, the world ignores Jesus, pushes its godless agenda forward, and leaves behind a trail of more chaos and confusion and conflict. So as a result, we hear this good news, but we may feel discouraged, tempted to fear. We may hang our head, overwhelmed, tempted to give up. I'm not sure this is going to happen. But friends, that's when Psalm 8 shines brightly. Friends, that's why we need Psalm 8. Because God comes to us in that moment when we're, when we're ready to throw in the towel. God comes to the, us in that moment in Psalm 8, and he speaks to us through David as if to say, give up? Are you kidding me? Don't you see? God delights in using weak things, weak people, to display his glory. He loves he chooses the weak things of this world to, strength, to shame the strong so that his strength, his majesty, not yours and mine, are on display. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That means, friends, there is no person that you and I will come in contact with, no person, that is too hard-hearted, too headstrong, too political, too skeptical, too sinful, that they'll never come to Jesus. That's impossible. Don't tell God that's impossible. It's not about our eloquence. It's not about our strength as a church or individual evangelist. It's about God. It's about how God changes hearts and God who silences the arguments of the enemy who opposes him through babies and through infants. And if God can do that and bring victory through babies and infants, he can use you and me. And so we can be confident because 2,000 years ago, at the first Noel, Christ came for us. And we can be confident as we share this message because soon he's coming again. And so in the in-between between his first coming and his second coming, we go out every day eager, bold, confident, continuing to pray and love and share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ on the mountain, over the hills, and everywhere. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, when we look out at what's going on in the world, when we look at wars in Sudan, when we look at wars in Israel and Palestine, when we look at wars in Ukraine and Russia, when we look at conflict in our own hearts and our families and our relationships, when we look at sin in our own hearts and we look at how the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil seem to make progress so easily, we grieve, we mourn, 
we with creation groan and long for Jesus to come again. But Lord, we thank you that he has come once for sin. And so we pray, come, Emmanuel, come again. But until then, Lord, we pray for peace. We pray that we would be bold and confident and hopeful Christians. Lord, we pray that you would bring peace throughout not only our communities, but throughout the land, that you bring these wars that we've talked about to cease and bring peace where there is no peace, and that you would bring glory to yourself through weak servants like us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.